0: This is Conor Lennon from UN News. The ocean and global climate are intrinsically linked, and if the right decisions are made at the UN Ocean Conference, the ocean will be a big part of Portugal's feature. That's the view of Samuel Collins, a project manager at the Oceano Azul Foundation in Lisbon. The organization plays a big role in ocean literacy, aiming to educate a blue generation it works on ocean conservation and also supports the development of startups creating products and services with positive environmental impact. UN News' Anacamo talks to Mr. Collins and started by asking him about the expectations for the upcoming UN Ocean Conference that will take place in the Portuguese capital at the end of June.
1: The UN Ocean Conference now two years delayed from the initial date. It presents an interesting moment uh, for the, the the ocean agenda because we're kicking off the decade, kicking off in 22, I, I appreciate it's two years delayed, but we're kicking off a decade uh, which has been labelled as the, the last decade to act. Uh, so essentially this is setting the the level of ambition of ocean action for the decade. And, and I think that's really important to understand that, while well, 2017, the UN Ocean Conference in 2017 was, was a really important moment for finally having a, a, a conference dedicated to the ocean. While it wasn't a COP, uh, it was a, it was a, a key moment for the ocean agenda, um, where we saw Fiji and Sweden, uh, host the conference in New York. It had a big focus on, on plastics. And that's obviously the emotional topic that we all get behind. And it was, it was, it pushed forward massively on the, the issue of plastics. But the ocean crisis is, is the plastics and so much more. You know, there, there's a lot more going on, uh, beneath the waves that we need to be highlighting. And, and I think, uh, and I hope that, uh, in 2022, the UN Ocean Conference will touch on a lot more uh, broader topics uh, and give those topics the the attention that they need. It's a very interesting year. This is the super year for the ocean, again, long delayed. We're coming to Lisbon not as a cold call, but coming from a number of events that have really been ramping up ambition uh, and raising the flag for the ocean through a number of forms uh, and, and really at a high level with the governments, which is fantastic to see because while civil society can uh can do the hard work and, 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 and really call for ambition. It's governments and member states that, that need to take the action. So we saw in Brest uh the French uh, had huge convening power to, to get the ocean conversation going early in the year. Then we had um Palau uh in the Our Ocean, again a big, big stopping point and building momentum towards Lisbon. Uh and, and here we are, there's a number of events in June. Uh, we have the climate uh dialogues ahead of el Sheikh, we have The WTO negotiations on on harmful fisheries, and then we come to Lisbon. So we're really coming to Lisbon with a lot of a lot of energy. Um, And then even looking past Lisbon, you know, it's it's a jam-packed year. We have high seas in August. We have uh, COP27 in Sharm El Sheikh. So the the really the big hope for for Lisbon is really kind of getting a number of decisions uh, out the way in 2022, so we can hit 2023 with a, a clean international slate. You know, there's a lot of decisions that have been in the pipeline and procrastinated and close to the finish line. Uh, And Lisbon represents an opportunity to really kind of push forward and and close those files uh, and move on to more pressing issues as well.
0: Great. Can you speak a little bit on the Friends of the Ocean Initiative and what are the opportunities for collective action arising from it?
1: Sure, yeah. So the the Friends uh, of Ocean and Climate are uh, uh, an informal group uh, of member states that are working within the UNFCCC, so the climate negotiation process, And really bringing in the ocean to to that forum. Because again, as as we've seen, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's no COP for oceans. So the ocean is usually added on uh, as an extra to the, the climate COP. Conversation or the biodiversity conversation. So, uh, but but it's, it's been a hard uh, push to get those present in those negotiations. So, the ocean had a huge win in Glasgow, um, which is down to the you know the tireless work of, of a number of member states, but uh, but really pushing from civil society to get the ocean recognised in the climate negotiations as fundamental to combating climate change, which it which it absolutely is. And, and, you know, the success of Glasgow uh, fully goes to the, the civil society organizations and the, the the member states and individuals that were pushing that agenda for, for a long time. The Friends themselves, they represent uh, an informal group of countries that are that are all ocean ambitious uh, and keen to see the ocean agenda move forward within the climate negotiations, but also beyond. Because while in Glasgow, um, the Friends were convened to discuss how the ocean should play a role in the climate negotiations, to be true to that nexus, we need to convene them and make sure they're present here in Lisbon to make sure that the climate is present in the ocean, uh, des- deliberations. So again, this serves as a, as a, as a way to make sure that messaging, uh, and, and information is flowing smoothly between UN processes. What the Friends represent is a, is a channel between the, the climate cops, uh, for example, COP26. We did a bridge to Lisbon and now in Lisbon, we're going to do a bridge to Sharm El Sheikh at cop Seven. So they act as a, as, a, as a kind of vehicle to make sure that ocean climate messaging is always is always present and is always increasing in ambition.
0: What do you think it represents to have the conference um, in a country and you know specifically in Lisbon, but also in a country that is um, so dependent on the on the ocean and on the on what the ocean brings to the to the society there?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a really it's a really good point, and, and Portugal uh, has always been very. Uh, I mean. The ocean is a huge part of Portugal's history. Uh, You know, you see it in the names of the families, you see it in the the street names, you see it in in all the culture, uh, the food particularly. Uh, And I always say the ocean will be a big part of Portugal's future if the right decisions are made now. But if the wrong decisions are made now, the ocean is going to be uh, struggling for the future for everyone. Um, That that can't be understated more. Uh, And so Portugal... Has always been leading on, on a number of ocean issues, um, and not least of all because in, in 1998, it, it's quite poetic actually with the, the location of the conference. In 1998, obviously the, uh, the Expo in 98 was, was in Parque de Nassauis, um, and Portugal decided that would be the International Year of the Ocean. Uh, in fact, the building I'm in was, is part of Parque de Nassauis, uh, the Oceanário mm-hmm. de Lisboa. And despite Portugal's fantastic efforts, uh, that, urgency to get ocean issues into the international decision making machinery, it wasn't successful. Uh, and again, you know seventeen years later we we met in Paris for the Paris Agreement. Um, and the word ocean only appears once in the entire Paris agreement. So again we're we're seeing this there's evidence that the ocean and ocean issues really are not getting the kind of the spotlight, the attention they need on the international agenda. So so now here in in twenty twenty two, Portugal yet again is, is, leading on, on ocean issues and, tra- and convening the, the international community to, to try to take a, a, an urgent stand on, on ocean decision making. Because fundamentally, if it isn't taken, uh, in the super year for the ocean in a country such as Portugal with, with as much kind of energy, uh, delayed from the pandemic as this, then when, when are we going to see, uh, ocean ambition?
0: That's absolutely true. You were talking a little bit about the uh, scenario to Lisboa and, um, I understand that's one of the fundamental assets in developing the literacy and conservation practices of the foundation. How is the that connection working towards uh, children's climate education in Portugal?
1: Yeah, so so as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the long-term view of the foundation is, um, is ocean literacy. Because if we can get all of the kids um, learning about ocean issues and the importance of the ocean, and fundamentally, you know, the ocean's impact on them and their impact on the ocean, uh, then when they become decision makers, celebrities, mechanics, shopkeepers, journalists, whatever, everyone um, has a role to play, then the decisions that they're making and the votes that they're voting for and the the products that they're buying um, will be done with that information in hand. I often say that I, during my education, um, not too long ago, I like to think, We learned about, you know, the global warming, but fundamentally there wasn't uh, a a sense of urgency. And obviously we have to deliver information in a way that is uh, digestible for different age groups, but... Considering the importance of these issues uh, and the fundamental impact they will have on the very, very near future and the current generations, we have a responsibility to deliver certain information to our our younger generations. And with that information, they can take the decisions uh, that they want. So Huston Azul, together with um, Oceania, the programs that we have really try to reinforce the importance of the ocean to the younger generations. Uh, And we've had some fantastic success. So what we do is we, the foundation program, Educating a Blue Generation, we teach the teachers... And we give them the material and the curriculum to to pass that message to the, the the kids in the first cycle of education. So they still do maths, but they speak about fish. They still do French, but they speak about the ocean. They do history, they do law of the sea, geography, oceanography. So really, just reinforcing a curriculum that's looking at through a blue lens. Uh, and in the Oceanario, the the fantastic facility, of the Oceanario de provides the kind of um, emotional connection that the kids might not have the opportunity to to experience. Um, And then they can come here and do a lot of fantastic activities and I'm trying to get it a little bit exciting, you know, because it's it's always easy to go doom and gloom, Um, but there's a huge amount of of potential in in a healthy ocean. And so really reinforcing that uh, is important.
0: Can you speak a little bit of um, what drove you to the marine protection? Can you tell us a little bit about your story?
1: It's a bit of a strange. I mean, I've always been interested in in biology uh, and nature. I, I grew up on an island uh, in the northwest of Scotland, and so I was always close to the ocean. I was always either on it or under it. In my kind of formal education, I, I did genetics, uh, and then with a marine focus, uh, and how, how to use genetic information to quantify conservation efforts, uh, which was interesting. Uh, and then that moves on to more of a kind of a quantitative statistic uh, path. Uh, and then I think with with, with the, the kind of Increase in, in urgency through a number of, of agendas in the last i would say 10 years um with the climate conversation moving forward uh, the biodiversity conversation moving forward i would say almost uh, ignorance drove me to uh, the ocean agenda i was in my you know relatively naive way considering i lived beside the ocean was unaware of the the, the state of the ocean and, and the role that the ocean plays in the kind of the global planetary system you know the the ocean is is fundamentally integral to the climate. Uh, it houses 94% of the living space on the planet. You know, I mean, I could reel off the statistics that that shock us all. The, the reason our TVs are so cheap, or the the products that we buy in the shop are so cheap, is because shipping transports 90% of the goods in in our homes. So there's there's so many reasons why we are connected to the ocean, whether you're a landlocked country or not. You know, uh, there's no no living organism on Earth that is unaffected by the ocean, and I think as, as I kind of came to, to this to this realization, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the urgency uh, we've seen the kind of the climate anxiety and the, the biodiversity anxiety that we've seen spread across the younger generations. I was perhaps, um, you know, uh, a few years ahead of that, and I. And I left my academic path and, and moved into how I could interact with, with influencing those, those and pushing forward that uh, agenda. Uh, and I, I, I met the Ocean Zoo Foundation, which I said was a kind of a young uh, foundation, um, about two, two and a half years ago, three years ago. Uh, and we were in a position uh, where the UN Ocean Conference was coming to our doorstep. Um, it's, it's just next door uh, to our offices. And so it was this huge opportunity to to have the international ocean community, the decision-making kind of machinery um, that, that has been lacking in the last two decades to come here uh, and really engage in the kind of science policy um, literacy uh, agenda that is, uh, I now know, incredibly important.
0: So, what action can you can you think we can do as citizens to promote a blue economy?
1: A sustainable blue economy can drive sustainable solutions as well, uh, and that, that can be understated. I, I think the, the the risk sometimes in conversations and, and discussions is that the, the maritime economy is confused with the, the sustainable blue economy. Maritime economy being very human-focused, shipping, fishing, uh, with fisheries topped as stocks, not as wildlife. Whereas the sustainable blue economy needs to focus on on solutions, uh, and this is where we say solutions for global problems, not ocean problems. Um, you know, we have we have a planet that is 30% terrestrial environment and 7%. Ocean. We can't think that we can solve our global problems purely on land because we're only harvesting, we're only using thirty percent of our our capacity So, really, we need to look at the ocean as the kind of engine to decarbonize our planet. And there is an incredible amount of, of solutions there. Uh, whether it's renewables, whether it's um, blue finance, uh, sustainable blue finance. I'll, I'll always I'll always correct myself because we need to be reinforcing sustainable practice, circular practice, etc. So, what can what can we you know? Average uh, person um, like myself on the street do it's it's difficult um, and we've seen that frustration reveal itself in the the strikes you know climate strikes they are ocean strikes and biodiversity strikes as well because it's all one system it's all connected and we've seen that frustration because um, perhaps member states world leaders are not doing what they either have said they did or that the science says they need to do um, so what I mean what I would say we do is is continue to advocate for solutions in whichever way that you find comfortable, whether that's on the streets, whether that's writing letters, whether that's uh, following a path that I take which is recognizing my own ing- ignorance and then redirecting my career path to, to contribute to to the what I saw as, as a way to, to solve some problems uh, and that's obviously a, a long a long road. Um, I, I, I would wish that we could go to one meeting and uh, we could solve all the problems. But there's an incredible amount of kind of diplomatic, geostrategic machinery that, and hoops that we have to jump through as, as civil society. Uh, and I always reinforce that, you know, civil society doesn't take decisions on international policy. That's the role of the governments and the member states. So what we need to do is hold them to account. You know, we need to say this is what science says. It is very clear. We have had it for decades. What are you, you going to do uh, and when are you going to do it?